So then we get to day four. And day four, he creates the lights. Now notice that he does not name this the sun, the moon, and the stars. Because in the ancient world, sun, moon, and stars are the names of pagan gods. They are the most important gods. The most important gods are typically a sun, moon, or a storm god and all the creation accounts, and all the mythologies. And so, he doesn't name it the sea. Okay? He doesn't name it the thing. He doesn't name it the sun, the moon, and the stars. What he's doing is he's stripping the divinity out of it. He's stripping the divineness out of it. A couple of things he does. First, he pushes it back to the fourth day, which diminishes the importance of it. Because in all the other creation accounts, the sun and the moon are the first things that come into existence because they're the most important. God says, no, 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 you're day four. Okay, you're not that important. Two, he strips them of their names. He, doesn't even, he just calls it the light, the great light and the lesser light. So that there will be no confusing this with a God. Okay, that is so prominent in their mind that they can't confuse it with a God. They're just lights. And then he strips them. Because in the ancient world, the stars and sun, the moon, and stars, they control your destinies. Here, he just says that there's signs for what is to come. Okay? They don't determine your life. They just become signs. And they're not to rule over your life. They've been demoted to just govern when the day begins and the day ends and when seasons begin and end. Okay? And so he demotes that, to that. And he even does this chiastic structure Chiastic structure is where you have an A, a B, a C. So in A, he divides the night. This is all in my notes, by the way. He says that there are four signs. And you're going to see this a lot in the, night, in the notes. And to give life, light. So letter A is he divides the day from the night, verse 14a. Letter B is for signs and for fixed times, verse 14b. Letter C is to give light to the earth, verse 15. And then you come to this D, and each one gets indented a little bit more. And then D comes to rule the day. So in D, he says to rule the day. And then he repeats D. It becomes a mirror. So it forms this like kind of parentheses, a closing parentheses. And so then everything gets repeated. To govern the day is D, mirrored. C, mirrored, is to give light. And B, mirrored, he repeats everything. So he says everything in an order, and then he repeats it in the opposite order. And the point of doing this is to get you to focus on the center. And the center is, that's the whole point of what he's saying. And the whole point is, not God, just governors. And they're just governors over light. That's it. And you're going to see this chiastic structure a lot. Chiastic basically is just the... The Greek word for X. And so it kind of forms an X. Okay? And whatever is at the center of the X is the emphasis. It also makes it easy to memorize. When you're in memory culture, that kind of stuff makes it easy to memorize. Because then when you're like, oh, wait a minute. I went to the next thing. B is not paralleling. Oh, I forgot B. Okay? So the reality is he uses chiastic structure to emphasize the point of the sun, the moon, and stars are not gods. They're just governors over days. That's it. And that's what they exist for. And so he gives a lot of attention to the sun, moon, and stars because he's not because they're important, but because he's got to take some time to strip them of their divineness. And they are important because God created it. 
and God is called it good. So he'll end it by saying it's still good. He's not like demoting it and belittling it. It's still good. But he's not elevating it up to this God nature. And so that's very important for you to understand. Creatures of the water and the air. He puts the birds. Now this is the first time he creates any intelligent life. Is on day five. He creates intelligent life, which not incredibly intelligent, but still intelligent birds. So he puts the birds in the sky and he lists them. And so he's filling the world with animals. Now one would begin to think that these are very important because the animals are actually worshipped as divine beings. Okay, Ra is the head of a falcon. Okay, Heket has the head of a frog. Okay, all these gods. Um, and even if you go into Hinduism, there's the elephant god and all that kind of stuff. You go to Buddhism, there's like the monkey god and all that kind. Of, there's all the animals are portrayed as gods. Doesn't really spend much time on them. He just says and he lists them in order, which is interesting. It's the same order as when they get on the boat, the Ark of the Covenant, or not the Ark of the Covenant. Sorry, the Ark, Noah's Ark. Okay, that'd be a crowded Ark. Um, so he lists them. So it's kind of that order of creepy crawling things and all that kind of stuff. But what's interesting is by giving little attention to them, they're just animals. And they're important and they're good and you still have a great relationship with them, but they're not gods. But the other thing is this. He also mentions the sea creature, the sea monster. And that's important too. You're like, wow, that's kind of a weird animal to just kind of single out. Like in today's thinking, we wouldn't think like, oh yeah, I'm so glad he mentioned the sea dragon. Okay, like what is a sea dragon? We don't have sea dragons. They do. Why does he mention it? Because he just says the sea dragon was frolicking among the other fish. What's the point? It's just another created thing. It's almost mentioned as an afterthought. Oh yeah, the sea dragon was there too. Why? Because the sea dragon is the most primordial, first and powerful god in all his creation accounts that has to be defeated. Yom, the sea, is almost doesn't get defeated by Baal. And Tiamat almost doesn't get defeated. They're so horrendous, so terrible, that one wonders how they even got defeated. And God says, oh yeah, it's just a goldfish in the pot. Okay, That's all it is to him. He's stripping it off. And it's the first time that you ever see the sea monster and the sea, and he's just moving them around, and they're just afterthoughts. And the point is, he literally has the whole world in his hands. I mean, that's what it is. The point is not how is he doing it. The point is... He is bringing order and function to everything. And so, um, he then creates create humanity. Now, I'm going to go over just a little bit because I want to end on that. I want to end on a good point. I mean, this is all good, but I want to kind of close it up a little bit. He creates humanity. This becomes the apex of all creation. Why? Because one, he speaks twice on this day just like he did on day three. That means that day three and day six get connected together. And so he speaks twice, but he also gives more attention to this day than any other day. So the law of proportion says where you spend the most time on is the most important thing to you. He spends a lot of time on this. Not only that, it's the only time that he puts his hands on something. He actually puts his hand into the dirt. And the word yasar actually is, well, that will be in chapter two. But he's actually, we're going to be told later in chapter 2, that he actually creates them out with his own hands. He also changes it from let there be, and now it becomes more personal, let us. And so this is the first time you see the let us. Now this is in the Trinity. 
Remember, they have no concept of Trinity yet. No Jews thinking, oh, Trinity, let us. What they always know, let us, as is like Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah chapter 6 is with seraphim or next to God, and Isaiah comes to the throne, and God says, who will go on our behalf? And then who, and then when you get to the second Kings and the Malachi, or I forget his name, starts with the M, one of the prophets goes before God, and then God says, who will represent us? And we're specifically told there's lots of angels there. The us is the divine counsel of God. It's the angels and the prophets who are actually brought up into the presence of God, and they all kind of govern together. And not that God needs help governing, he wants people to join him. And we'll talk about that a lot more a little bit later. Yes, is the Trinity there? Yes. Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of passages throughout the Bible make that very, 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 very clear. But to a Jew who just came out of Egypt and has no concept of the Trinity, and the Trinity will be the hardest thing even for the disciples standing in front of Jesus to get, it's not screaming that. What it's screaming is God's saying, let us. Now, it doesn't mean that he needs the angels to help him. It just means he's just saying, let us do this. That doesn't, you don't, when you say that, it doesn't always mean somebody's going to join you. It just means this is what we're going to do. And so by we're going to do this means I'm going to do this, and you're going to join me in singing my praises. Okay, and so the reality is he creates humans, and it's more personal. Not only that, three times he blesses humanity. Three is the number of redemption, okay, which is interesting because three, day three, the land is revealed. Three is symbolic of redemption. Three days and three nights in the grave before Jesus is raised from the dead. You're going to see three all the time. But so three represents that redemption kind of comes in a way on day three. Six is a multiple of three, which means there's a redemption found here as well. God blesses humanity three times on this day. And not only that, when he gets to verses 26 and 27 and 28, and 27, you'll notice that your passage is indented. It's poetic. You notice that indenting? In the original Hebrew... There are three lines there, which you can see in your English, but each line has seven syllables. Seven is the number of completion, meaning this, redemption is now complete with the creation of humanity. Redemption, now you're like, well, they didn't need saved of anything. No, because redemption can just mean making things right, making things good. Okay, so is it now good? Is everything formed and filled? Is the darkness separated and divided and controlled and put in its proper place? See, yes. And so man now completes this redemption because man is now going to be made in the image of God. And the image of God is this weird phrase that we don't know exactly what it means. But where we see it showing up more often than anything is of idols. And the idol is this. When kings would conquer lands, they would erect an image of the king and put it there before they moved on to the next place. The point of the image was to remind everybody who's in control, who owns this territory, and to remind you who you go to when things are not right. It represents the king and his sovereignty and authority. The kings would often call themselves the image of their gods. Okay, and so the reality is, is an image is used of an idol because that image is the image of that God to remind you who's authoritative, who's in control, and who you answer to. So by creating humanity in his image, what he's saying is, 
you represent me and you are the, the extension of my authority on this planet. And that's the point. So when America gets to the moon and we put our image on the moon and we're like, we own it. Okay, we control it. Not really, but that's what we thought. We mostly were saying it to the Russians. We put our image there. When the Romans came in and would crucify people, they made sure that the eagle was very high up so everybody could see it. It represents authority. And that kind of stuff. So in here he says, God created humanity in his own image, seven syllables. In the image of God he created them, seven syllables. Male and female he created them, seven syllables. So in verse 26 he says, let us create humanity to rule and subdue. Then he creates humanity in his own image in verse 27. And then in verse 28, he commands them to rule and subdue. So what does it mean to be in the image of God in the context? To rule and subdue. Well, that's really bad words for us today. Because ruling and subduing is Hitler, Stalin, Fidel Castro, okay? corrupt business owners, okay? overbearing husbands. That's not a good phrase for us, but that's post-sin. Rule and subdue. How did God rule? How did he subdue? By bringing life. How does God rule and subdue? He brings order to where there's chaos. He brings life and light to where there is none and there is darkness. He orders things and he can call it good when he's done. He redeems what is not livable. He creates places where you can experience blessings. So how do you rule and subdue representing Yahweh like that? It's a positive thing. So basically, here's the idea. God says, this is where you see the relationship. I don't need you, but I want you. You're probably going to screw it up, but I want you to join me. And the same way that I'll let my daughter help me fix things and that kind of stuff, and she slows me down, and things don't look as good when we're done as if I had done them by myself, and she sometimes has broken things that has caused me another trip out to, like, Plain City because they only sell that part there at that factory, okay? The reality is, but I enjoyed it. Why? Because I want her to join me. Because I'm relational, and she's relational. Because in the end, she can say, I helped him do that. And sometimes as she gets older, I might actually let her make decisions and change the course of what we're doing so that she it becomes both of us making that together. And she has just as much input and just as much as design as me. And this is what God says. I have done all this. Now join me and continuing. And you're like, well, wait a minute, what is there to continue? It's all done and complete. Ah, but we're going to learn in chapter 2 that there's only a garden in one part of the planet. And the rest of the planet is a barren plain. And so God is going to come to them and say, I've created the entire universe and the entire plain, all the animals, and I've given it all to you. But there's only one place that the land is producing plants that can actually bring blessing and life to you. Now that you've seen how I rule and subdue, you see how I redeem as my representatives in my likeness. Likeness communicates character, like Christ-like. Go out and keep ruling and subduing on that barren plain. And we'll talk about that a lot more next week. Okay, so basically what he's doing is creating you. So this is your purpose in life. 
Now, you're not an accident. With all the other pagan accounts, humans are an afterthought. I mean, when you're reading the pagan accounts, it's almost like they're like, the end. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah, the humans came about like this. Okay, now for real, the end. That's literally how it reads. The story comes as end and climax. And sometimes like one of the creation accounts, the God is like kind of drunk a little bit and kind of asleep and he starts drooling and the drool hits the dirt and humans pop up. That was not intentional. And that's kind of gross. With Marduk, he like takes serpents and cuts them open and squeezes their blood out into the dirt and like life comes out. Which means you're the product of blood, serpent, chaos, evil, and afterthought. And humans are created to serve the gods, to serve them, to feed them, to sacrifice. Every time you sacrifice an animal, you're feeding the gods because they're hungry. And we're even told, like, the gods, like, we're told in the writings that the gods were flocking and swarming over the sacrifices like flies, devouring it and pushing each other away. They were so desperate for the food. Here, you're the apex of creation. And you're created good. And you're put into a good creation. And you're given the ability and the right and the authority to rule and subdue in His name. And not only that, you don't feed God and serve Him. God feeds you because He put you in a garden where He planted trees that always produce and always give life. And that's a very, very, very big difference. And so in this picture, God is first and foremost saying, I am different than all of the other gods. I'm a God of order. I'm a God of goodness. I bring good to things. And because of that, everything I create is good. And I created you to have a relationship with me. I created you to have the greatest authority over the planet. I created you to continue where I left off. And not that I'm going to deism wind the clock up and go off to the other part of the universe somewhere. I'm going to join you because I am the ever-present helper who's always with you. But we're going to do it together. And I'm going to even let you screw it up because I want you so badly to have a role in this kind of stuff. But I'll still pursue you to the ends of the earth because I am a redeemer. And that's who I am by nature. And so I am I created you to have the most important significant meaning in all creation. But you're not a god. You'll never become a god, but you can be like God. And you will be my image, and you'll rule and subdue. And you'll have a purpose and meaning in life, and I will provide for all of your means, needs. And that's what God, And then, not only that, I created you male and female. Now, not to be weird, but God is both male and feminine. Okay? Now, one... He's never ever called he or she ever in the Bible in a biological sense. Okay? He is called a he in that kind of a sense. Um, but it's a pronoun. It's not a biology. It's not a sex thing. It's not a. But if we are all made in the image of God, then where did femininity come from? It had to come from God. And then notice he'll later say the two will become one flesh in the image of God. So somehow the male and the female come together to complete that, which we'll talk about later next week. But the reality is he created male and female. Why is God portrayed as a he throughout the Bible? Mostly because this. You can't call him an it. Because that makes him impersonal. If God is personal, he has to be a he or a she. Because the minute you call him an it, it's no longer personal. 
Well, is he a he because of the headship of male, that kind of stuff? Yeah, that kind of stuff. But here's the other thing. God has no female counterpart. In all the pagan accounts, God always has a female counterpart. In all the accounts, the females are always tied directly to creation. That motherly, nurturing image. Whenever you learn about the female goddesses, they're always connected to creation like a mother and a kid breastfeeding. And of all the male gods, the male gods can be very sexual, but a lot of gods are not sexual. All the female gods are sexual. They're always sexual, and they're always directly and inseparably connected from the material realm. So when you're trying to do your best to communicate who you are in limited vocabulary and language in an already pagan culture, you have to be a he or a she to communicate that you're personal, but you're a he to communicate that you're not connected to the creation. Because what happens to the baby creation happens to the mother, the goddess, and vice versa. Now, I don't know exactly why. I'm not going to say this is it. I'm just saying, from all of our studies and all the scholars written on it, it seems to communicate this idea that he's trying to communicate that he has headship as a king and a culture that views males as headship. He's trying to communicate that he's not connected directly and interlinked with creation like all female goddesses are, but he has to communicate that he's also personal and intimate. And so he does not become who he is. He becomes how he communicates himself to those people in that culture. But he is not he or she biologically because God is not human. God is spirit. But he is masculine and feminine. Because we're going to see a God who says, come to me, Israel, as I long to gather you to me, like a mother bird gathers her young to me. I will lift you on wings of eagles, which is what a mother bird does. They would drop you, and the eagle would fall, and they would start flying, and if they didn't, the mother would scoop you back up again until you did it. But there's other times that he's very masculine, and his judgments, and his headships, and all that kind of stuff. And so when you see God, you see a very masculine and a very feminine God throughout the entire Bible. But he uses the pronoun he not to communicate his essence or biology, but to communicate his transcendence and eminence and the creation. There may be more to that that we don't know, but that's what I've got right now for that. And so male and female together are both made in the image of God, which means male and female, king and queen, over creation, representing him, redeeming and bringing order to things just as he does. So, as one who's been redeemed by Christ back into the image again, what does it mean to be the image for you? It means that you go out and redeem. You bring order to things. You bring light to things. You bring life to things. And not just in a bringing people to Christ kind of a sense, but psychology is not very biblical right now. It needs to be redeemed. Politics isn't very biblical right now. It needs to be redeemed. There's a lot of things probably happening in hospitals and the way that you do business and the way that healthcare, that needs to be redeemed. God didn't just redeem humans. He redeemed everything in creation. We need to think of ourselves going into the, the neighborhood, parenting, business, psychology, veterinarians, and redeeming the way that they do it. Do it in an orderly, life-giving way that everybody looks at you and says, 
it is so obvious that you're different than all the other images that I have seen. And that's the purpose that he's given humanity. 